This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Keith Wallace. Uh, he is the gentleman who conducted the pioneering research on uh, meditation, specifically transcendental meditation. Back in the early 70s, he was published in Science, the American Journal of Physiology and Scientific American, uh, in the early stage and published in many more uh, journals since then. He is the founding president of Marshy International University, now called Marshy University of Management. He is still on the board there. And his latest book uh, that uh, he has written with uh, Dr. Travis, uh, uh, both of them being neurophysiologists, is Dharma Parenting. And we want to talk about that today. And I should say that uh, Keith is a friend of mine from way, way back, as he is also a friend of Phil's. And uh, I was uh, uh, also involved with him in the very early days of Marishi International University. Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you come on the show, Keith. Thank you guys very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Good. In the interest of full disclosure, all three of us were involved in those early days. <clears throat> and here we are all these years later. And... Back in those days, Keith, um, you had at least one child and then a, a, another and so forth. And now, all these years later, you're doing a book on parenting, Dharma parenting. Maybe give us a sense of what um, inspired the book, how it came to be, what was the motivation for writing it. Good question. Yeah, I have four children and six grandchildren, and my own kids asked me, what the heck are you writing a book on parenting for? So, <laughs> yes, yes, that is a good question. And, you know, it's uh, interesting. Um, I'm not exactly sure what was the absolute beginning moment, but um, it just came to me at one point when I was with a group of people that this was something very valuable that needed to get out there. Somebody was asking what was the best advice I could give someone, and the best advice I could give someone was to get a good teacher. And then I thought about it, and I was addressing actually a number of moms, and I thought, well, you know, you really are the best teacher. As a parent, you're the one that really starts your child. You're the one that really forms all their basic neural circuits, which are, no matter what we do in life, those ones that are formed early in childhood are still the ones that have an enormous effect on our behavior and our habits, our emotions, everything we do. So I talked to Fred, and he had written uh, some very nice stuff on child development, and we just sort of thought, hey, this would be a good idea to try to help parents. Uh, we both had that experience that when you become a parent, there's no manual out there. There's no book. You're kind of uh, struggling for information and uh, particularly information that deals with behavioral characteristics. There are a lot of books on how to put the diapers on and so forth, but how to really understand what's important as a parent and what to realize the role you have, um, 
at least we didn't have anything. There's no college course on it, which is kind of insane when you think that the most important thing for most people they'll do when they get out of college is becoming a parent. You can be a billionaire. You can write books. You can do all kinds of things. But in the end, it's your children who you care about the most. They're the ones that really stretch your heart, and uh, they're the ones who you've really brought into this world and are really responsible for. The contract never ends. And so, uh, you know, we got started on it, and we put down some ideas, and we decided to really incorporate all that we had learned, particularly from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and... Um, Transcendental Meditation is a big part of the book. Um, Ayurveda is a big part of the book, understanding the different brain-body natures. Um, we call them brain-body natures. Mm-hmm. They're generally called body types. Um, and, you know, we tried to make the book extremely practical. I must say it's our wives who really did the best writing in the book. And the stories and the kind of tools that we developed are really a result of all four of us working together and really going back and thinking about all the things that we had done, all the things that we had learned. And, of course, we made mistakes ourselves. It's not like, you know, we didn't understand a lot of things when we were first parents. So huge amount of learning that goes on. But we tried to put all this knowledge down in the light of what we had learned from Marshi and put it in a book for you know, future generations, um, <laughs> so that people would have a more profound understanding. And frankly, there's probably more research now than there's ever been. You can see research on things like gene expression, on brain circuits that have to do with stress. I mean, it's unbelievable how much research has been done mm-hmm. on parenting. Uh, so it's a it's an amazing area with a lot of wonderful facets to it and uh, we really enjoyed doing it we spent about three years writing it and now it's out and it's quite fun right keith uh, let me ask uh i um uh, first of all i want to let our listeners also know i know all four of your kids and i had three of them when i was a school principal and uh they they really and i'm not just saying this because you're a guest on the show they're really fabulous fabulous kids they're you know uh uh, in middle, you know, the 30s and uh, even 40 now. Uh, and so whatever you did uh, worked out really well with them because uh, they're very different from one another, but really uh, tremendous. And also I, I, I have noticed, especially I'm uh, still in touch with your boys, that uh, they themselves are very committed, very devoted uh, parents. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, it, uh, it must be structured into their genes. But the book is called Dharma Parenting. Uh, the word Dharma, I, I think I understand what it means. Probably different people have different thoughts uh, or understandings about what that word means. Some people might not know at all. Define that, and then uh, if you could elaborate a little bit, because you get into this in the book, how much of uh, parenting skill is uh, kind of structured into the person's uh, physiology already, and how much ca- is it is learned? It's like being an athlete, some people are naturally good at it. Some people need a lot more training. But if you could talk about Dharma and also uh, th- that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, Dharma, 
is an interesting word. It's sort of like yoga and meditation and karma. You know, those words nobody knew anything about, you know, 20 years ago or so, and now they're used in commercials, you know. So these words are words that come from the East that have um, really been absorbed in the West uh, in interesting ways. Dharma um, is a word that has many different meanings to it, um, but the meaning that we chose was a meaning that's, you know, it's both from India, from China, from Japan, from the whole East, really. Uh, it's this idea that it's your path in life. Your dharma is your path. And for a child, that's, you know, very important. What's their path in life? And how can we help them as parents make that path happy, healthy, successful, what can we do to ensure that our child finds that path and that the journey is a, a very meaningful, spiritual, and successful one? And so that's, you know, we really fell in love with this word just because of its profundity. We realized that it's a bit of an obstacle because here you've got a name that nobody knows about. It's the title of your book. It's not the absolute catchiest title out there. But I would say it's it's very oriented toward, you know, yoga moms who are already interested in yoga and meditation. And so this is something that takes them a step further. And it's true that different people have innate abilities as parents. And but again, you know, usually it kind of works out that a lot of your parenting skills come from what you learned as a child. You know, if your parents provided certain things for you or if your teachers provided certain things for you, then um, you learn those. And that's kind of the way the knowledge has been passed down, not very systematically and a little by chance. We kind of identify right in the beginning. We have this uh, acronym, which is Dharma, you know, because we just chose the letters as our six tools. So D stands for discover your own brain body type and that of your child. And for anybody listening, you can immediately go to the quiz on dharmaparenting.com. That's our website, D-H-A-R-M-A parenting.com. And there's a quiz you can take for yourself and you can take for your child or your child can take it themselves. And that quiz gives you a four-page PDF report, which tells you all about your particular nature and um, what are the strengths and weaknesses, what do you need to do to stay in balance. And that's kind of the first recommendation we make because, you know, you can be one type, like the three basic types, Vata, Pitta, and Kaplan. We use the Ayurvedic words here to honor the tradition. But say you're one type, say you're a a pitta type, a pitta dad, a pitta mom. And that means you're very goal-oriented, very competitive, organized, lots of energy. And say you have maybe a vada girl and a kapha boy. And, you know, nobody's always pure. They tend to be mixtures of all these. But let's just take this as an example. So you've, you're all ready to go out for sports, you know, and you've got this lovely little vada girl who's like a butterfly, and she's, you know, being, yeah, you're the Pitta, and she's the Vata, and she's 
um, very creative. She loves music. She loves to read. She loves to dance. Very uh, movement-oriented, amazing learner, very imaginative. And if you start to impose your pit of nature, like, oh, come on, let's go out, go in these competitive sports, here are the goals, we want to get these goals done today and everything, you're going to have, you know, what we call brain-body types colliding. It's just not going to work. And likewise, if you have your little copper boy who's a little slower, you know, he likes to take more time put getting dressed in the morning, eating breakfast, um, extremely good-natured, very friendly, um, but, you know, he doesn't always like change. So you get on him and you're, again, you've got your goals and your competitive sports and whatever, and he just takes a little longer to do things. And so if you don't factor these things in, then it's hard to be a good parent because a lot of parents try to impose themselves on the children, which, you know, the expectations of the parents on the children is, you know, sort of a classic psychological problem that people have. And what we don't realize is that the very acts we do just change the brain. The brain is constantly being changed by experience. So a child that's from zero to three years old has 24 million connections between their neurons every minute. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on in their brain and some of these are very genetically organized so they're to enable us to see better to feel to do basic functions but also many of these connections are later going to form the very basis of our behavior so if one parent you know who's has a particular nature tries to impose that on their child that really doesn't allow the child's own individuality to unfold Mm -hmm. and doesn't allow the strengths of the child to unfold. And the key concept here is balance. The the pit parent can be very good, can be very organized, keep everything together. But if the pit parent misses a meal or is out in the sun and it's too hot, they can get irritable and angry. And that's not going to help. We all know that, you know, kind of anger and fatigue are not good for child rearing. Right, right. Yeah, if I could let uh, uh, Phil go ahead. Yeah, I want to add, Keith, it sounds like the book does a, a great job in um, recognizing the individuality of the children and the importance uh, to the parents of uh, being able to discern their uh, children's nature and therefore what would be best to uh, bring out that development. In Ayurvedic terms, um, some people listening to the show will be familiar with Ayurveda and the three doshas you just described. Um, is the uh, questionnaire enough for a person to have a good sense of their uh, type and their uh, condition or situation or constellation of uh, qualities at at any given moment in the absence of a proper diagnosis with an Ayurvedic uh, Vaidya or doctor and a pulse diagnosis Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying. 
Sure. Yeah, it's always it's always better to have like a real uh, Vija do a pulse diagnosis. That would be ideal. But of course, you know they aren't available. So these questionnaires have been used. We've sort of tested them, uh, and they seem to be quite reliable. They're they're interesting because they this particular questionnaire has some questions in three separate areas of life. And then it gives you the percentage of vata, pitta, and kapha in each area. So even though you may say, oh, you're a vata, pitta, it may turn out that in your area of emotions, you have a lot more pitta than vata. Mm. And in your area of your physical, you know, you could even have more kapha. So it's very, um, it's a little more precise than kind of a, an overall categorization. I mean, we're always worried about using the word type because typing, you know, Mm -hmm. people are afraid. You're typing me a certain type. That means I'm limited. And we try our best not to do that. And we try to caution everyone that everyone can unfold to their full potential. Uh, This is, we're not trying to type or limit people into category. We're not trying to excuse bad behavior because it's this type. We're just trying to give parents an insight into how they can keep everybody balanced. And there's just simple recommendations, like for a Vata kid, you know, being on a routine is huge, keeping them grounded. For a Pitta person, you know, eating on time and not getting overheated, huge. And for Kapha, um, really actually getting people off a routine, getting them outside, doing more exercise, really important. So we're not going to the highest level of Ayurveda, we're just kind of taking the simplest aspects. We're not really recommending any herbal preparations. We have a Mm -hmm. section in the back of the book where we talk about diet, but it's much more focused on behavior and how you can, just through simple behavioral techniques, um, have a much deeper appreciation of the differences and how you can keep each person in balance. Keith, I have a question along those lines. Let's say uh, somebody gets your book, Dharma Parenting, they become aware, okay, I have a kid that's very kapha, or I have a kid that's very vata, and they make whatever right. uh, behavioral adjustments to accommodate uh, a better learning and uh, developmental uh, uh, pr- program for that child. But when they go to school, in almost any school, what's really rewarded is uh, pitta types, people that are very organized, very energetic. Probably a lot of I us know. are like that, and that's why we sort of spent more time in school than others. Uh, how does the, yeah. so you are a parent, you're doing it, but the school isn't. How do you coordinate that? What do you suggest they do? And if you had charge of a school, uh, what would you do to, to make sure that those things were uh, dealt with? Yeah, well, one of the tools in the book, the third one is attention. And you make this big point that the quality and kind of attention you give the kid shapes their brain and you know we have attention and appreciation so we you know a lot of kids um suffer from the fact that they don't get appreciation for who they are and like you say the schools very much reward the pitta type um and so you have to as a parent you can you know help this like so if you have a kid that's more cop on their little slower learner and they're being sort of penalized by all the other kids who are quicker learners, then, you know, you, you pretty much have to figure out how to help the kid at night yourself or get a tutor or 
do things that will accommodate because it's not going to happen at school. I mean, a really, really good teacher gets this, and she knows she has fast learners, slow learners, and medium learners, and a really good teacher actually manages to adjust the lessons so that um, kids don't get penalized. But unfortunately, there are a lot of teachers who don't take the time to do that. So as a parent, you have to supplement your kid um, Mm. by giving them the extra time to learn. Or if it's a VADA kid and they're bored at school, you got to give them books to read, you know, give them opportunities to express their creativity. Maybe they take art lessons outside of school or music lessons. Parenting, I mean, you have such huge control over the upbringing of these kids that, you know, of course school takes up a huge amount of time. Of course there's massive social interaction. But you are the coach afterwards. They Mm -hmm. come home. They need to be reassured. They need to be debriefed. They need a lot of help at that point, you know, just to be able to manage all the different things they're going through, particularly at the different ages, like when they become teenagers. That's pretty much, you know, supreme complications are arising. (laughs) And if there are parents who keep the channels of communication open, the kid gets enormous benefit. They they can actually, you know, freely talk to their parents about the kind of difficulties that everybody's going through. But instead of getting advice from another kid, you know, which is we know what that does, <laughs> um, they get it. They get advice from you know somebody who has some wisdom and compassion and love, and they have trust. And suddenly, you know, they've got their own coach, their own counselor that's kind of getting steering them through what are going to be, for sure, difficult social situations, because it's just part of life, part right, of growing right, up. And right. Keith, and, uh, you, you, um, you alluded to this already, I wanted to ask about uh, section two of your book, which is divided into four age groups, and it looks like there's a kind of a uh, sense of the developmental stages of, of a person's life from uh, early childhood through uh, young adulthood. How does the approach that you're recommending and the, uh, the uh, use of Ayurveda and understanding of Dharma change as the child progresses through different ages? Well, we try to make a big point on that. You know, we have these six tools, but then how they're applied is quite different at different ages, and it's because the brain's changing. you got all this enormous activity when they're really young, and then it's uh, some really amazing things happen. You know, when the kid gets, you know, four, six, seven, eight, like that, suddenly they become, you know, far more verbal. They're interested in rules. They like boundaries. They like um, knowing everything. And, you know, one thing that's fascinating is their brain at that point becomes thicker. The cortex becomes thicker Mm. than at any other time in their life. And then a bizarre thing happens when they become teenagers. Suddenly you have something called neural pruning, where actually the number of connections in the brain gets cut down. Mm. It's like pruning a plant. They actually try to strengthen the growth of a plant, you know, by pruning off certain branches. And now it's kind of a use it or lose it. What connections that are particularly important, those stay, and the ones that aren't so important go away. 
So, I mean, kids, you know, they go to bed at night and they wake up in the morning, they got a different brain. I mean, this is like a lot <laughs> of things are going on. Yeah. And teenagers, they look like adults, but, you know, we know they're not adults. And we also know that, you know, neurophysiologically, they don't have all the connections to the frontal areas of the brain. So why we expect them to make correct judgments is crazy. They don't have the tools there to do it in their brain. But they think they young, do. They think they do, yeah. They <laughs> do. And, then, you know, and young kids, you know, when a kid is bouncing on a couch and you scream at them, you know, you know stop jumping, they might hear jump and they jump more. They, they just don't have the same neurophysiological tools. We impose our judgments, our brain operations on them, and it's not true. You know, there's a lot of controversy. Should you pick up a crying child? Are you spoiling a child? And it turns out all the studies, you know, really show that, yeah, you should pick them up. They really are crying for a real reason, and, and most of the time it, they're not being fussy. Something's actually going on wrong. Hmm. Is it good to be a, an authoritative parent? No. It's terrible. I mean, it's ultimately parents that punish their kids physically and are tough and everything, those are the kids that, drink the most, take the most drugs, and get into the most trouble when they become teenagers. Is it good to be a permissive parent, let them do what they want? Absolutely not. Those kids also get into drugs and mm. alcohol and all kinds of problems. It's kind of like common sense. I mean, you've got to give them boundaries. They need boundaries, but it's got to be done with love and appreciation. The quality of the attention is very, very important. And Let's face it, if you're a single mom, how much time do you actually have to interact with your kid? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're in a very strange world where we're not even using all the tools we have just because of the restrictions of our lives, the situations. So what little time we have, we really, really need needs to be quality. And parents really have to understand that, what they do, the quality of their attention, has an enormous effect on how a kid will behave for the rest of their life. Great. Uh, Keith, uh, it, it, when you wrote your book, uh, Dharma Parenting, and, you, uh, and you, you did your research, uh, would you say that there are certain cultures in the world that are, are following what you're recommending in the book more than other cultures, or is it a mishmash where some people in, in North America do it, some people in Asia do it, some people don't? Uh, or are there cultures in the world that, say, in Japan or wherever, where you think they're more in, in line with what you're recommending in the book? Um, you know, I think it's a huge mishmash right now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think anybody does all those things. I mean, right. I think, you know, there's a, a very interesting book about an American mom that goes to France. And she finds out that the child care system there, they get, you know, gourmet food. The people get huge salaries. It's like, you know, the greatest child care system in the world. And then, you know, you go to Japan or something and you see, or you go to India and you see how they bring up the children. But we've all been so dramatically influenced by technology and the world that it's rare that anybody is, you know, lives in a, maybe in certain countries, certain places where you really have a, a, the, a traditional family structure and where people, you know, the grandparents are waking up early to take care of the kids. It's just, it's, you know, the world has changed so much that many of these great traditions 
that kept families together are lost in some of the terrible traditions, you know, that that caused grief among all kinds of children are gone. So right. it's good and bad. Yeah, let, let, Phil, I want to ask one follow-up question, one final yeah, question for me. And that is, uh, any, uh, and it touches upon what you were just saying, um, anywhere I've been, uh, I just came back from Europe, and it's just, in Europe, it's just like the United States. Everywhere I go, every time I see a kid, they're looking at a phone that's in their hand. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I do it myself, I I, but they're, I they're, they're following Pac, uh, whatever they're following, Pokemon, or they're looking, they, they, they don't look at each yeah. other. They're, and as they're teenagers, it completely takes over. Uh, how how uh, would the principles uh, in your book address that? Yeah, we do talk about that, and we, we've done an online course at MUM where we go into some of these topics more deeply, but um, electronics, you know, I mean, the most horrific thing in the world is a cute little kid, and they're, they're on a phone and playing, and then the parent quietly comes along and says, okay, now it's time to change, and the kid just goes screaming mad because they're the kid says to the parents, text me that, and I'll do it later. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, at least Pokemon, they get up, you yeah. know, so that's, there's, there, but of course they could run into a car. Right, like right, that. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's utterly crazy. There, there are these circuits in the brain, you know, the dopamine circuits, which most people talk about in terms of addictions, you know, if somebody's a, an addict on something, they have this one neurochemical that they really need all the time. And the brain needs higher and higher levels, so you get these very intense addictions. And I would say, you know, electronic games and video and all this stuff is like that. But, you know, when we were kids, we had television, you know. Right. I, I, I think of one of our good friends, John Smilek. He told me, you know, he grew up in front of the television, right. did all his homework in front of the television. <laughs> he went to the... He only has three channels. Uh-huh. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So I mean, I mean, it's it, it's a strange world, and kids do manage. They do survive. There's some bizarre studies that show that games actually improve some yeah, aspect yeah. of the brain. But you know, in the end, I think what we recommend in the book is that you gotta create boundaries. You actually have to have, you know, very specific numbers of hours they can play these games. For a Vada kid especially, they got to stop, you know, before the night gets on because they need time to come down from one of these games. And, you know, we make pretty strong recommendations, just kind of common sense, on creating boundaries and not using the games as a babysitter, really. Hmm, you know? right. Keith, one of the uh, chapters that stood out for me as I was reading this, uh, at just even looking at the table of contents, is um, managing meltdowns. I'm yeah. sure every parent <laughs> would, you know, yeah. has had to deal oh, yeah. with this. I don't have oh, kids, yeah. but I'm an uncle. Every, yeah, yeah. You know, there are pa- people listening who have maybe wished they had this book when they were raising kids, but now they have grandchildren or nieces and nephews. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What advice could you give, you know, in briefly in the time we have left, for dealing sure. with well, meltdowns. Uh, yeah, there, th- this is one of the tools. Again, you know, we have D is for discovering your brain body type. H is to heal yourself. You know, T 
TM and all the very good things you can do. A is for attention. R is for routines. And now we've got to M, which is manage meltdowns, which, believe it or not, we have some more letters. We have six C's for this one. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the first three are pretty straightforward. you got to check in with yourself. you got to figure out, you know, did you eat and did the kid eat? Just some basic right. to figure out what's causing it. First thing you got to do is comfort the kid because you can change their brain state just with a hug, you know. So it's mm-hmm. it, the very, very first thing is comforting. And then you do have to change the brain state. And whatever, you can't reason with a kid in a meltdown. There's just, you know, telling, screaming at him, yelling at him, telling them, you know, this is not the time. It's just useless. So right. you do have to recognize they're in a purely emotional state. And so whatever it takes, whether it's singing to them, taking them outside, whether it's, you know, quiet time, whether it's um, giving them some food, whatever you can do to change the brain state, and we provide lots of different alternatives for different types, you've got to do. And then once you've done that, then you can address the more kind of reasonable issues. You can give the kid a choice. You know, once they're able to kind of think more clearly, then they can choose, you know, do you want to keep crying or, and we'll leave the restaurant or do you want to stay here and finish your meal? And if they can choose, that's great because then they can decide, yeah, no, let's stay. I'm okay. You know? And then if they, if these things go on, you've got to have consequences. And in our R for routines, one of the things we strongly suggest are family meetings where you actually talk about these consequences Mm -hmm. ahead of time and they participate. So especially for teenagers, Let's say it's a curfew issue, you know. They understand, hey, you come back at this time, that's great. You can keep that curfew. If you break the trust, if you break the curfew, what would you say would be a consequence? Well, Dad, I think, you know, maybe if then I had to come back a half an hour early for three weeks or something. So they've participated Mm. in the consequences. So when they come up, it's not like you're springing anything on them. They know ahead of time. They know what's going to happen. And... Finally, in the, the last C is for coaching. In the end, you are the coach. You're the one that has to be there for them in the hard moments, in the, you know, great elation and the great traumas. You have to be there, and you have to act as a coach more than anything. You have to be by their side and get them through the difficult mm-hmm. moments. So, uh, Phil, any final questions that you have? Yeah, I would like, in the one question or a few minutes we have remaining, I would like to switch gears for a minute and take advantage of Keith's presence. Um, Keith, you and Fred Travis, your co-author, you've both been uh, at the enterprise of scientific research um, for many years now, for decades. And you're um, in a position where you've been at the sort of um, intersection of science and spirituality and the uh, intersection of brain research and the study of consciousness. Um, I'd be very curious to get your perspective on how things have changed in science over the few decades and especially with regard to the understanding of consciousness, you know, I always find it frustrating when I hear, 
these very sophisticated brain researchers on television uh, operating under the assumption that consciousness is just uh, a result of brain activity. Um, and I'm really curious to know how you see things at, at the moment and how it's changed. Um, you know, I think it's a still a, a world that's caught up in a lot of ignorance. Um, we went, you know, from when I was a young scientist to extreme ignorance, where it's kind of behavioralism was the, the norm and people were, you know, they wouldn't even talk about consciousness. Right. Now where people are talking about it, they're debating it. It's an open debate in neuroscience. They actually, you know, really uh, deal with what are the neural circuits in different states of consciousness. But there's still the dilemma that we all face, and that is that how, how do you consider consciousness as separate from the human body? And that, I don't think science has gotten very far. It's just a very, it, it gets into another issue, a met, more metaphysical issue mm -hmm. about whether consciousness is something which can exist by itself, mm -hmm. independent of the physical body. And, you know, nobody has seen any proof, you know, even the near-death experiences, whatever people come up with, it's still a tough one to... Yeah convince anybody it, it walks into the area of religion and spirituality and so you can't really blame scientists they're sort of caught in a world where they at least are talking about consciousness higher states of consciousness but you know what's more interesting than anything it's not so much the scientists but it's what Maharishi did he took enlightenment which had never been talked about in terms of science and he described it in terms of the brain for the first time. Mm -hmm. So he reversed the whole thing, and he actually said enlightenment was, you know, neurophysiological refinement. Nobody in the spiritual world had ever done that. So it's kind of a meeting between two very divergent points of view, and I would say that both of them are moving closer. Marshy really initiated the kind of scientific exploration into consciousness and scientific understanding of enlightenment and science, you know, still it's hard for them, but at least they're far more open, far more interested and in at least talking about it. Very good. Fabulous. Well, Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and a couple of things. One is, uh, we look forward to having you back on because I can think of at least a dozen other areas I'd like to discuss with you. And also, I think we uh, should have sure. the children on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the book, Dharma Parenting, by Robert Keith Wallace and Frederick Travis, uh, available at Amazon.com. And uh, what I'm going to do, and, and, and I'm serious, I have a family member who has a lovely uh, young daughter who's having all kinds of trouble sleeping at night, and I'm going to get him the book because I've talked to them about TM, I've talked to them about Ayurveda. I think if they get the book and they actually read it, uh, they will have a, a more complete understanding and, and, and ultimately help the child in because uh, it sounds like they're going through a real Vata period now. So uh, we're recommending the book, Dharma Parenting. And uh, Keith, thank you so very much. Any final words, uh, 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 Keith or Phil, that you want to share? No, I just want to thank Keith for being with us, and we'll look forward to seeing him again in person. Thank you, guys. I think you do a great job, and it's wonderful that you 
uplift all our spirits and raise consciousness around the world. Thanks, Great. guys. Thank you so Thanks. much. All the best.